Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are with us in person, are joining us via live stream, or watching on demand at some later date, we're glad for the opportunity to worship with you today. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. When you think about it, it's amazing that through the gift of technology, we can connect to one another regardless of location and worship together. No matter when or where you are watching from, we're glad you are here with us. Here at Dayspring, we believe nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just curious about church, or maybe you're just looking for some hope. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. Your journey matters to us, and we would love nothing more than to walk with you. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church or by checking out our Facebook page. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. To help you get the most out of the message today, we've prepared some discussion questions to help you process what you are learning on your own or with others. You can find the discussion guide in our resources section of our website. And now, let's worship together. You know, I have lived in Oregon my entire life. I was born in John Day over in Grant County in eastern Oregon, and I grew up all over the eastern part of the state. And then I moved to the valley when I uh, began college, and I've been here in the Willamette Valley ever since. I've never really thought seriously about living anywhere else. I love Oregon, although I've been to Florida enough times in the past few years that I can see why people retire there, and I could handle that, even with a hurricane or two every now and then. One of the things I love about the Willamette Valley is the relative safety when it comes to Mother Nature. That doesn't mean that we never have challenges with nature, of course. Last year, uh, just a week from now, last year, we had wildfires that destroyed too much of the Detroit area, and every now and then we get a little bit of flooding. But by and large, we don't deal with tornadoes like the Midwest, hurricanes like the Southeast, the extreme heat of the Southwest, or earthquakes like California, uh, nor do we suffer the cold and snow of the Midwest through the eastern seaboard. So yes, we have to deal with a little more rain than I'd like. And if the prognosticators are correct, someday we might see a life-changing earthquake. And if that happens, you'll find me at Kevin Dial's house, because he's the one I know will be prepared. Uh, but until then, we get four seasons in relative safety in comparison to the rest of the country. Like Tennessee, for example. You've probably seen in the news these past couple of weeks that severe flooding in parts of Tennessee have left at least 12 people dead and dozens more unaccounted for. In less than 24 hours, the city of McEwen saw over, just over 17 inches of rain. Now, just for perspective, it often takes days or weeks for us to accumulate just 
two to three inches of rain. 17 inches is almost half of Oregon's annual rainfall. And McEwen got that in less than a day. Uh, Fortunately, the waters have already started receding, but for places like Waverly, Tennessee, the work is just beginning. It was the hardest hit city. Hundreds of homes were left uninhabitable. Water powers, water snapped power lines and peeled away slabs of road from the ground. You know, never having lived through a calamitous natural disaster, I'm not sure what's worse, the event itself or the cleanup afterward. Like, what a daunting task. And I can't begin to imagine the overwhelming emotion of losing everything in one fell swoop and then having to clean up the mess. I'm hoping that Jesus comes again before I ever have to put my life together like they are right now. It's a tragic situation, and I'd like to pray for them as we transition into our message this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, we do lift up the, the people of Tennessee, and uh, we pray, Father, that uh, they would be filled with hope in the midst of the devastation that they're facing from the flooding. We pray, Father, that um, help would get to them where they need help. We pray that the church uh, in Tennessee would uh, just, the Holy Spirit would enable them to meet needs in ways that show people Jesus at a time when Jesus is the best answer for rebuilding life. Just give wisdom and discernment and uh, make sure the help gets there quickly. And of course, that means that we also should think about the hurricane hitting uh, the New Orleans area, even as I, as I speak. Uh, Haiti, uh, still dealing with the aftermath of an earthquake. Uh, Father, um, even in Afghanistan, we still continue to lift up the, our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, our fellow Americans who are there. We pray, Father, for your protection. We pray for wisdom. Um, We pray for open doors for them to speak uh, your life into people who need to know Jesus is the answer. We pray for boldness when you are leading them in that direction. Father, we pray that heaven would move to, to fill our brothers and sisters with your presence, with your hope, and with your peace even as heaven moves to protect their lives. And now here in the relative safety of Oregon, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would speak your truth through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Most of the time, rivers are a source of life. Uh, They replenish the nutrients of the farmland. They create habitats for wildlife. Uh, Large rivers like the Columbia and the mighty Mississippi become an integral part of our transportation structure. I remember riding in the car uh, on I-84 as a child, seeing barges transporting grain from from eastern Oregon to Portland, and they were navigating the, the locks of dams, Although for some reason, probably because of my brother, and he probably misunderstood, we called them marges in our family. So that's how I still think of them. I'm like, look, there's a marge, and nobody knows what I'm talking about. 
It's only when a river escapes its well-defined boundaries that it becomes an uncontrollable monster. Without boundaries, rivers bring destruction, not blessing. Charles Swindoll writes, In many ways, love is like the Mississippi River. Life, love flows with life-giving power, but without boundaries, it can do great harm. Without boundaries, love often goes too far, accepting, tolerating, justifying, even applauding sin. Uh, this kind of love puts us in dangerous waters. So today, as we move into 2 John, we're going to learn how to keep love within safe boundaries using the two solid riverbanks of truth and discernment. Now, if you're just joining us today for the first time here in the room or online in one of our online communities, we're so glad that you uh, chose to check us out today. Uh, All summer, we've been looking at the letters written by the Apostle John that we find near the end of the, the New Testament. We call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but originally they were just letters. And we've spent most of the summer exploring the five chapters of 1st John. Now, this week is 2nd John, and then next week is 3rd John. They're a little easier to tackle from a time perspective. 2nd John is the second shortest book in the Bible. In the original language of Greek, it has a mere 245 words. For us, that translates to 324 English words. Third John is the shortest book with just 219 Greek words. But just because they're short doesn't mean they aren't full of good, meaty, biblical truth. So let's dive right in at the top, beginning in verse 1 of 2 John. John writes, This letter is from John the Elder. Let's stop there. For those of you counting down the moments until lunch, uh, we've made it seven words. Only 317 to go. Uh, This sentence has technically been translated incorrectly. In the original language, the author doesn't identify himself as John. He simply writes, the elder, which in the original language basically means being relatively advanced in age, you know, old, which would certainly work to identify the Apostle John, who was around 90 and would have probably been the elder in the church. By this point in history, most of the original disciples were already dead, and he was among the last. Uh, Elder can also refer to an official in a civil or religious office, such as an elder in a guild, a synagogue, or a church. And of course, John would fit that category as well. In adding the name John here in the New Living Translation, the translators have just given us a shortcut in understanding who most evangelical scholars believe wrote this letter. I say most because scholars do what scholars do, and the authorship of all of John's biblical works have been debated for centuries. However, when you compare the writing style, the themes, and vocabulary, it becomes pretty clear that the Apostle John is the author of all of these works. In this case, the use of elder is intended to convey more intimacy and warmth in the relationship with the recipient. It would be similar to me simply signing your pastor in a note to you. There'd be no question who sent you the note, especially since I have the neatest handwriting of all of your pastors. So uh, this letter is from John the Elder. I am writing to the chosen lady 
and to her children, whom I love in the truth, as does everyone else who knows the truth, because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Now, just as much has been written and speculated about who exactly the elder is in this verse, the same is true for the letter's recipients, the chosen lady and her children. Three main views have risen to the top through the years. First, the chosen lady and her children could be a reference to a particular church uh, whose individual members are figuratively called her children. Uh, The problem with this view is that John switches between the singular you and the plural you all, or if you're from the south, the y'all, throughout the 13 verses of the letter. If the singular you is the whole church, then who is the plural addressing? On the other hand, if the plural you all is the members of the church, then who is the singular addressing? The second view would be that John is writing to the church universal and all of its members. The more likely view in my mind is that John is addressing this to a specific chosen lady. As we'll see in verse 5, he again refers to a single dear lady, and in verse 10, her house, and finally in verse 13, her sister. All of those references are pretty specific to a person, not an organization. But what is also true during that period of time of, in history, there weren't any church buildings like we experience them today. They were house churches. So what is most likely the, 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 the case the singular chosen lady was a leader in a church that met in her home, and the church that met there, uh, that covers all of the singular use, and then the plural use would be to the rest of the church that met in her home. At the same time, the truth in this letter applies to all of us to the church universal, but that's really the simplest explanation. The only thing it doesn't address is whether it is, uh, John is addressing children as her biological children or her spiritual children. Much of the letter is intended for this larger group, so it's probably her spiritual children or the church that meets in her home, not her biological children, but no one knows for sure. Some commentators have taken the view that the Greek word uh, that was translated chosen is actually a proper name. Since the Greek word is eklektos, in English that would become lady electra. Electa, excuse me. And also in Greek, not one of the superheroes, Lady Electa, not a superhero. And also in Greek, the word uh, translated lady could, uh, would, could also be a proper name. In English, that would become Martha. So leads, that leads some scholars to speculate that the chosen lady is Martha of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus fame. However, don't go spreading that one around. It's just speculation. It could also simply be translated as the elect lady, which again could be the church universal. Now that's all bonus material. I've only added it today for the original language Bible nerds in the room to consider, or maybe I should say nerd in the room, Hunter. Whatever the real answer doesn't impact our understanding of the letter. John's affection or love for the chosen lady and her children, whether it is an it, she, or they, is founded in truth love and truth. Let's come back to that in a second, because John ties them together again in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace 
which come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. Now, John uses the word truth four times in this salutation, which tells us that it, there's something ab about its importance in his mind. A as theologian Daniel Aiken says, truth in a, the biblical sense is essential, not optional, eternal, not relative, consistent, not changing, impermanent, not situational. All truth flows from Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is himself the true God and eternal life. As Christ followers, this truth must be embraced as our own. We must passionately pursue truth that is bathed in love. Uh, commentator John Stott puts it well. He says, our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. There is a fine line between truth and love that Christ followers have historically not walked very well. So to that end, John gives us some companions to truth and love to keep them in balance. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is God doing for us what we do not deserve. Grace does for us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God not doing to us what we do deserve. Peace is wholeness and well-being in all aspects of life. So grace softens the delivery of truth. Mercy strengthens the boundaries of love. Together, they bring peace. All five characteristics of, the Christian, li of, of Christian life, truth, love, grace, mercy, and peace, are centered in Jesus. Now, from a theology standpoint, we shouldn't miss that John clearly affirms the deity of Christ here in verse 3. We probably miss a little of this in English, but John is saying God and Jesus are God, and Jesus is God's Son. So let's sum up these first three verses this way. Uh, we must love the truth. Now John continues in verse 4, how happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded. I am writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. Uh, most of you know that uh, Didi and I love spending time with our granddaughter, Avery. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Avery's parents attended a wedding in Pennsylvania, which meant that Pops and Grammy were blessed with four fantastic days with Avery. When it's just the three of us, Avery is every mother's dream. She represents her, her family perfectly. In fact, she's only a little pill when mommy and daddy are around. I remember when our kids were small and they'd go over to a friend's house. We were always happy to hear that they were on their best behavior when mom and dad weren't around. Well, until the teen years, but that's another story. John was encouraged to experience the obedient lifestyles of some of the chosen lady's children. Of course, we don't know how or why their paths crossed, but however they did, they represented Jesus well, and John noticed here 
walking in truth means being obedient to the command of Jesus. So her, her cho- the chosen lady's children were loving well. Now, I say command because Jesus only gave us one command. And John reminds us of what that was in verse 5. Love. Agape love. Now, since we just finished 1 John, this reminder is pretty fresh for us. He spent quite a bit of time unpacking agape love in it. Walking in truth means obedience to the law of love. The law of love is in whatever situation you find yourself, in every interaction with every person, no matter what, the law of love is that love does what is required of love. Love does what is required of love. And what love requires always ends up being the highest, most God-honoring act, which is truth. Love is always aligned with God's best. And if it isn't aligned with God's best, then it isn't love. Now, I know for some of you, this answer is less than satisfying. Many of us have grown up in church backgrounds that focused more on truth than love. And it doesn't seem like love doing what love requires is going to get the job done. We need some more rules. Some of us like having more concrete handles to hang on to, like the Ten Commandments. Listen, Jesus came because rules didn't work. Rules always drop us to the lowest level. They help us skate by with the minimum. I can do the minimum, but that doesn't make it love. Uh, Here's what rules accomplish. Uh, If you're following along in your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Here Jesus says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. So thou shalt not murder. That's the law. But the law has no power over the heart. Jesus is concerned with the heart because it's the wellspring of life. So he raises the bar. Verse 22, he says, But I say anyone who even, excuse me, but I say even if you are angry. Did I get lost here? (laughs) Did we start with murder? (laughs) But I say even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you, are, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, by the way, the word for angry in the original language isn't about a flash of emotional anger. Emotions come and go, and emotions in and of themselves aren't sinful. In fact, uh, it, it's just how you act on them. So in this case, it's a settled opposition to the person. It's an anger that seethes inside of you over time. Although, let's be honest, we're pretty good at justifying to ourselves. I'm not angry. I just don't trust them. I don't want anything to do with them. I'm just apathetic toward them. We're, we're pretty good at masking anger and calling it something else. Michelle calls that putting lipstick on a pig. Now drop down to verse 27 for another example. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Now again, there's the command. As long as you don't commit physical adultery, you're good. And again, Jesus raises the bar. 
But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's what love requires. Not just physical faithfulness, but mental faithfulness as well. This is what Jesus means by loving others. In every situation, the law will try to force an external obedience. Jesus wants more. He wants your heart. So love, the way Jesus means, always does what is required of love, and love doesn't need any other rules. It always calls us higher. You can't make rules about love. Making rules about love makes it something else, something other than love. Let's call it unlove. And don't think for a minute that loving the way Jesus means isn't truth. Jesus didn't let anyone get away with their crap. He always called them into alignment with God's best for their lives because that's what love does. It doesn't enable bad behavior. It doesn't let someone walk all over you, not because it's bad for you, but because it's bad for them. My friend Elvin used to attend Dayspring. He's moved away now, but when he lived here, he attended Dayspring, and he played bass on the worship team. Elvin was single and dating when he first came, and then he met uh, his lovely wife, Casey, well, his girlfriend at the time, and they moved in together. So Elvin and I had a little talk, and he left Dayspring because he wasn't moving out. He wasn't willing to align his life with Jesus at that moment. Living with someone outside of alignment with God's design wasn't God's best for Elvin, and I wasn't willing to let him stand here up on this stage and be an example to others. So Elvin left Dayspring. And honestly, that's the usual response from someone. Uh, Even if you present the truth in love and love in truth perfectly, you have no control over how someone receives truth. I'm not responsible for truth, who, for how someone receives truth. I'm only responsible to wrap truth up in love. And honestly, even though he completely understood what I was saying, uh, we, we parted on good terms. I never thought I'd see him again but I was wrong. A while after they got married, Elvin and Casey came back to Dayspring. Elvin told me at the time that they came back because of the way I handled that conversation. I delivered truth in love. I called him to something higher, and even though he rejected it, he felt loved. He and Casey have since gone on to be key leaders in their church. Real love always calls people into alignment with God's best. It doesn't ignore sin. Love does what is required of love, even if it means having hard conversations. And of course, the law of love doesn't in any way diminish the other doctrinal truths we find in Scripture. Love applies there too. However, where the church, capital C, has tragically erred throughout history is in delivering doctrine without love. Love is big enough to cover doctrine as well. We don't need any other rules than love if we're living it out. So if we could sum up the first three verses as we must love the truth, we can sum up these as we must live the truth. It isn't enough to say we are all about love. We must live that way too. If you don't live out love, you don't have truth. You can't separate the two. It's never 
either or. It's always both and. And the chosen lady's children were living it out well. Now let's continue with verse 7. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people will become a partner in their evil work. Now, we know that the world looks different today than it did in the past, but we're probably a little fuzzy on the details. Remember that there weren't holiday inns or hojos in every city. People didn't travel like we do today. Travel was far more dangerous. So rather than a hotel, it was more common to find a kindred spirit and stay in their home. Uh, you might find a kindred spirit in someone who seemed Christian. Uh, so they, they knew the right lingo, so to speak. And with hospitality as one of the highest values in, of the church at that time, you'd invite them to stay at your house. Uh, these verses tie back into what we talked about in 1 John chapter 2. Remember that it was the Docetists who were an early iteration of the Gnostics who were teaching that Jesus didn't come to earth in a physical body. He was just a spirit. And many of these false teachers had come, they had had their start in the church and then were led astray and then worked to lead others astray, which meant that a local church body had to be on guard for false teaching. Not that we don't need to be on guard today, it just looks a little different now than it did then. And while we might not hear this particular false teaching today, the principle remains the same. What we believe determines how we behave. Wrong doctrine will always lead us in the wrong direction. And there is no end to false doctrine in our culture. Everything we watch, everything we read, everything we listen to is preaching a worldview of some kind. And so much of it sounds so good, and yet so little of it is. Satan is good at wrapping up false doctrine with a nice little bow and sliding it into our lives while we're unaware. And before you know it, we're a little wonky in our faith. The spirit of Antichrist uh, that fights against the advance of Jesus in this world is way better at masking false doctrine than we are at recognizing it. This is where the rubber hit, meets the road when it comes to abiding in Christ. Again, it's fresh because we just spent 12 weeks talking about it, but when we abide in Christ, in fellowship, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is discernment, the ability to tell truth from error, right from wrong. The world without the Holy Spirit has no ability to recognize truth from error. That's why the world seems so wonky to us right now. Error is championed as truth, and truth is decried as error because the world can't tell the difference. When we are not abiding, we diminish our own ability 
to tell the difference. We're at greater risk of believing the lies. Frankly, we're at greater risk of not even recognizing a lie when we see it, when we aren't abiding. Now, in these verses, John gives us three dangers we face because of deception in the world. First, in verse 8, we see the danger of going back. Do not lose what has already been gained. We, we have freedom in Christ, and false teachers want to take that away. Don't go back to bondage. And the, the consequence for us is not a loss of salvation, for we can't lose what we didn't earn in the first place, but we can lose some of the reward. And while we don't know exactly what John meant with these words, I think we could tie it in to what we learned in 1 John chapter 2. Someday we will stand before Jesus with either shame or boldness because of the way we've lived. So don't go back. Too much is at stake. And then in verse, five, verse 9, we see the danger of going beyond. Uh, we don't see it as clearly here, but in the New American Standard Bible, this uh, phrase is translated as anyone who goes too far. Uh, the danger here is going beyond the limits of the Word of God and adding to it. Uh, false teachers like to add to the Word of God. They want you to think that they are progressive and that the church is in a rut. They have something new and exciting to share. But in the end, they are just making math errors. They are either adding to the truth by giving extra biblical sources of authority, subtracting from the person and work of Jesus, dividing our allegiance to God through Christ alone, or multiplying the requirements for salvation, which just makes salvation a form of works. We are called to check our math. Jesus only. Bible only. So we have the danger of going back, and the danger of going beyond, and in verse 10 we see the danger of going with. Since there were very few hojos or holiday inns during the first century, Christians were encouraged to open their homes to visitors. Hospitality was one of the highest values and a tangible expression of love and service. Local churches didn't have the Bible, so they often relied on traveling pastors and teachers for instruction and they needed places to stay. So John just had a just-say-no policy for these false teachers. He didn't want anyone to give a false teacher the impression that his heresy was acceptable, nor did he want to give the false teacher ammunition to use at the next place he stopped. Oh, you know Pastor Chris. Well, I stayed at his house last night when I was in Kaiser. I'm sure my name would open doors in the community of Who's that again? <laughs> if they, I guess if they knocked on my mom's door, she would let them in. Uh, my hospitality could inadvertently give legitimacy to evil. And besides all of that, John didn't want a believer to open themselves to the infection of false doctrine. For the record, hospitality is still a value in the New Testament. Uh, John's warning isn't that we should never allow a non-Christian into our home. This instruction is about false teachers not lost people. John wants us to live on high alert, which means we must look for the truth, which gets harder and harder to find in the sea of junk out there. 
John wraps up this letter by letting the chosen lady know that there is more to say on the subject. As we'll see next week, these words are almost identical to his farewell in 3 John. He writes, I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink, for I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. Greetings from the children of your sister chosen by God. Now, while these words don't really need any explanation, let me point out that they express the importance of Christian fellowship and the joy that fellowship brings to our lives. And while a letter is good, face-to-face is better. I think we've experienced this truth through the last year. Livestream is good, face-to-face is better. Now, as we wrap this up, here's what I've been thinking about. Some of us are better with truth. Some of us are better with unbalanced love. Some of us have left a trail of hurt feelings reports because we've delivered the truth in a way that doesn't represent love well. And some of us avoid delivering truth or we water it down so greatly that it isn't recognizable because love covers a multitude of sins, right? While that statement might be true, even biblical, covers doesn't mean uh, to ignore, justify, or hide sin. Love speaks truth even when it's hard. We need to become experts at truth and love. Love and truth. I believe every word of truth can be delivered in a loving, life-giving way, although that still doesn't guarantee how much someone else might receive it. Every word of truth delivered and received in love takes both people closer to Jesus. Love never destroys. I was talking to a Dayspring friend this week. His family is caught up in the lies of what we would call a cult. He's delivered the truth out of love for his family, but it hasn't been received in love. So he was wondering what to do next. I told him that we're not responsible for reaping. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We're only responsible for sowing, and that now he should love them well and let, the, let love be the fertilizer that God uses to grow the seed. He doesn't need to keep hammering away at truth. He's planted the seeds. Now he can be right, or he can have relationship. Choose relationship and love, love them while God does what only God can do. What that takes is a fair amount of grace, mercy, kindness, patience, and prayer for guidance. And we only find that when we are living out truth by abiding in Christ. So let's start there and see what Jesus does. Let's pray. Father, I'm pretty sure that all of us can think about love and truth and have some idea of um, where we tend to err. And we we all have a bent. We all just want to speak the truth, or we all are afraid to speak the truth, afraid to call someone to something higher, 
And neither one is right, and we know that. But walking that line is so hard. Knowing when to speak truth and when to love, how to, how to phrase things in ways that give life rather than steal it. For all of that, Father, we need the Holy Spirit at work in us. So do your work in us as we abide in you. That we might love the way Jesus calls us to in truth. With a lot of grace and mercy and kindness on the side. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and your commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. There is no expectation or obligation for you to give. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen. And for those of you who still use them, you can also mail a check to us. We'd like to thank those of you who subscribe, like, and share these messages with your friends. If you are listening on our podcast, feel free to leave a review. More of Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems, and we appreciate your help inviting others to check him out. We'll see you next week.